Hello and welcome to Lift the Sink, a podcast about books and writing that showcases the short fiction of new Irish writers as well as my own. Let me start off this first episode by telling you a little bit about myself and my motivations for starting this podcast. My name is Paddy Doherty and I'm from Longford originally, but have spent close to the last decade living in Seville. I've had short stories published in New Irish Writing when it was with the Irish Independent and featured on RT Radio 1. I've also been featured in a few literary magazines and journals such as The Bohemoth, The South Circular and Epoch Press. I've written a few novels too, which have been rejected for the most part, although my latest attempt, I Can No Longer Tarry, is still out there somewhere in the world of agents and publishers fighting the good fight, I suppose. In the meantime, I wanted to start this podcast because I love short fiction and I, I'd love to read some of yours. I'd also like to showcase some of my own work, as I said, and get my name out there a little bit. The plan is to release an episode every six weeks and feature one of your stories in each episode. The submission guidelines for entry are as follows. Stories should be submitted in word format, double-spaced and less than 2,500 words in length. The email is liftthesync at yahoo.com. There's no entry fee. The only requirement is that you follow the show on Twitter and include your Twitter name in submission email somewhere. The winning story will then be broadcast on the following episode and the winner will receive €50 Euro in prize money. The deadline for entry is the 15th of December. I obviously hope to increase the prize fund if I get a good response. So if you're someone interested in sponsoring the prize, then please by all means get in touch. Or maybe I'll be able to entice one of those celebrity philanthropists like uh, George Soros or Johnny Ronan and they'll throw the show a bone or something. I don't know. Anyway, to give you a feel for the format of the show in our inaugural episode, I'll feature one of my own stories. Uncontactable was shortlisted for the Francis McManus Short Story Prize in 2017, and it was broadcast on RT Radio 1 as part of that series. The story is read by the wonderful Irish actress Cathy Belton, and I'm not going to lie, this was a very proud moment for me. So, without further ado, here is Uncontactable. A vague scent of cooking hangs in the warm air of the hallway. A pleasant yet unappetising aroma that gives the house its unique family hallmark. We linger there for a moment before the medium ushers my husband and I into his living room with a polite half-smile. Its decor is distinctly at odds with my preconceptions as to what a medium's living room is supposed to look like. His couch is leather and new and there was a brand-new flat-screen TV between the window and the fireplace. On the mantelpiece, I spot a picture of an old GAA team taken some time in the 70s, and this further arouses my suspicions. Where are all his chains and pendants, his monocle and his red gypsy bandana? The last one Jerry dragged me to was dressed like the drummer from a prog rock band. And that at least fell in line with my expectations. Tea or coffee? he asks. Uh, Tea, please. Green, if you have it, I reply. I'm afraid I only have normal tea. Barry's, our lines, are one of those. He arrives back with the teas and with another delicate smile invites us to help ourselves to the milk and sugar provided on the tray. Then he sits himself down in the armchair closest to us and leans forward as he prepares to address the issue at hand. 
As I'm adding milk to my tea, Jerry glances around at the setting and confirms with a nod of his head that the facilities are indeed up to standard. Now, continues the medium, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. Uh, how long ago was it? May, says Jerry. 2015, I say, in the interest of accuracy. I see the medium size. It doesn't get any easier. Jerry's fingers curl around his mug a little tighter and I can see it in his eyes that the reference to the time elapsed has caused his sadness to spike momentarily. I pat him gently on the thigh to remind him that I'm here. Well, the medium continues, I must admit that I hate this next part. It seems so against the nature of what I do, but I'm afraid it's a necessary evil. You see, it's customary for us to get the whole issue of the fee out of the way before we begin. Unfortunately, some folks don't always want to hear what the departed have to say. Contacting the other world is, shall we say, a delicate business. For instance, I had a woman in here not that long ago trying to get through to her recently deceased husband and she was subsequently very annoyed when I told her that he didn't wish to speak to her. But what is one to do in such a situation? This is also a very taxing procedure for me. It's not a mere case of phoning up directory inquiries, so I'm sure you'll appreciate that the fee is necessary in order for us to proceed. There's an unnerving formality to the way he speaks. It seems oddly rehearsed, his cadence not quite matching his rural accent, as though he has adopted this formal register in order to sound more legitimate. I can't help but wonder how on earth he became a medium in the first place. I sit in silence as Jerry takes out his checkbook and begin to construct a backstory for the homely-looking medium. I imagine him working in a bank or an office of some sort, taking longer tea breaks than his younger co-workers because he's been there since before they were born. I'm sure it doesn't bother him, though. He's just another ageing gentleman getting on with things. But somehow, amidst all this clerical mundanity, he's managed to accumulate a small and dedicated group of followers. Grief groupies, if you like, who spread the word around about his gift so that it gets to the people it needs to get to. That is, the bewildered parents of dead children. Jerry and I. Then again, maybe he is genuine, Maybe he does possess the gift. Maybe he isn't just a cynical opportunist. Maybe he talks to ghosts over breakfast. Maybe he knows where Shargar is. Maybe he proofreads the poems of Jim Morrison soon to be published in another realm. And maybe he will put us through to our son. Have you brought the item of clothing as I requested? He asks. Yes. Jerry replies breathlessly, eager to get the seance underway. And the map of the area where he died? I open my handbag and pass him the map wrapped inside my son's old blue Mighty Mouse T-shirt. And the cheque is for 50 euro, he adds finally, taking a sideways glance at the figure before confirming, Perfect, now we can begin. Jerry has marked the address with a cross. 209 Laurel Park. The medium spreads the A to Z map of Galway out over the coffee table. 
takes Frank's T-shirt in one hand and removes a bronze pendant from his shirt pocket with the other. It's grubby and in dire need of polishing. But that only adds to the charm of the object. The medium closes his eyes serenely and begins an incantation, swaying the pendant carefully over the map as he whispers. Everything suddenly feels more authentic. Jerry grasps my hand and stares intently at the map, as if our son were about to materialise before our very eyes. I squeeze it back a little. The medium takes a long, deep breath and exhales. To thou who hath passed beyond the veil of life, we beg of you this day, bring peace upon our strife. To thou who hath passed, heed our mortal call, bless us with respite, bring peace upon our stall. Francis Dillon, our little Frankie, our child, with his big blue eyes and his gorgeous little gap-toothed smile, died just a year after having come out of the closet, aged 20. He had been terrified of telling his father, but I assured him that everything would be fine. I knew it would come as quite a shock to Jerry, but I had faith in him that he would come to terms with it eventually, given a little time and guidance on the matter. That was by no means to say that my husband was a dinosaur. To the contrary, he could be quite the liberal. When out with friends for dinner, Jerry had little problem proclaiming things like, if two men wish to marry, then that is the business of those two men. Or, judge not lest ye be judged. But I knew that those convictions existed in the abstract, and that if such moral dilemmas were to drop suddenly on our own doorstep, he might not be so accommodating. In the end, we sat Jerry down and told him the news. He was silent for a week afterwards, drifted from room to room like a zombie. But eventually he came out of his coma and accepted it. While he may have been guilty of avoiding the subject, he still carried on with the business of fatherhood, just as he had before. Jerry may not have been at ease with the idea, but ultimately he loved his son, and nothing would ever change that. Frankie had a boyfriend named Derek, and it was Derek who had convinced him to come out to us. From the very first moment I saw them together, I knew they were perfect for each other. Frankie's face lit up around him, and as a mother, that was all I ever wanted for my son. But the boys got too high on their own youth and indestructibility. Parties went on longer than they should have. They took things they ought not to have, and Frankie's little heart was weaker than he knew. But Jerry refused to believe this version of events. He would never accept the circumstances in which Frankie had died. That was beyond him. He demanded justice. But I couldn't blame him for what happened. Frankie was his own man. He didn't give in to peer pressure. If he did something, it was because he wanted to. It was just a tragic and stupid accident but I didn't have the heart to challenge my husband. Jerry hired lawyers and private investigators in an attempt to mount a case against Derek.
and perhaps they would have been successful had it not been for Derek's suicide. It has broken my heart to watch it all unfold. To lose a son, and then his lover. To lose a husband to insanity, and be incapable of letting go of either. It has broken my heart. Both Jerry and the medium have their eyes shut tight. The table begins to shake. The medium begins shouting and trembling hysterically, as though a celestial hurricane were forming inside of him. Francis! Son of Helen and Jerry, we beg of you, come, speak with us. Then suddenly his voice drops to a whisper. Francis, thank you. Thank you for reaching out to us in our hour of grief. What's he saying? Jerry shouts. He's saying, he's saying that he loves you both very much. Tell him we love him too. I scream, unbeknownst to myself, but no sooner has this transcendental hurricane swept me up than it spits me back out into reality and I'm left feeling lonelier than I have ever felt before. Has he said anything about the murder, urges Jerry. Frank, continues the medium, your parents want to know what happened. Can you tell us what happened that night? And now more silence. The medium affects the channeling of some kind of energy. Francis says, Be at peace, father. Be at peace, mother. For I am at peace now. The body of the medium untightens. Apparently the portal has closed. He is gone now. It is difficult to keep the channel open for long. The, the spirits from the other world say their peace and go... They seldom linger at our behest, he admits, with a sad shake of his head. Perhaps his heart is in the right place after all. Perhaps he's trying to give my husband some peace of mind to mend his broken heart in his own roundabout charlatan way. We leave the house without saying much. Jerry has got his latest fix, and, as always, he seems vaguely disappointed. He starts the engine and sits staring at the dials for a moment, before pulling out of the medium's driveway. I rest my head against the window as we reach the M6. I gaze out of the fields, lapping towards the horizon, and wonder whether or not the day will ever come when I finally find the courage to say, It's real, Jerry. Our son is dead. Dead means gone. Dead means uncontactable. My husband suddenly opens his mouth and looks at me, as if he's waiting for the words to assemble on his tongue. I can see the epiphany forming in the moisture of his eyes. He knows. He must know. I swear he's going to say it just as surely as I have thought it. It's real, Helen, isn't it? It's all real. But no. Not quite. There are still others out there, Helen. Ones that come with far better recommendations. I'm not sure about that fellow, but I still think there's something in this if we can just find the right one. I realise that it will never be real in my husband's mind. Nothing ever will. Jerry is at war with reality. A war he looks certain to win. There's no point upsetting him with the truth anymore. 
this is the lie that he can live with. And if these charlatans help him to maintain this vital delusion, then so be it. I'll go along with him. I'll hold his hand. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that. Moving on, apart from short stories, I'd also like to use this platform to talk about what I've been reading lately as well as other topics related to writing. Um, I guess the standout read for the, of the last few weeks has been José Saramago's novel Essay on Blindness. If you haven't heard of Saramago, he was a Portuguese novelist and journalist and Nobel Prize winner, born in 1922 and died in 2010. The novel was written in 1995, and to me it feels like one of the few uh, novels written in the last 30 or so years that, that, that has that scope and scale of those grand, epic, kind of intimidating works of literature like from people like Dostoevsky or Bronte or Melville. Uh, Essay on Blindness is, is, is just one of those novels that takes on society as a whole. It, it recounts the outbreak of an epidemic of blindness in an unnamed city. A man waiting at a traffic light suddenly loses his sight. The man who helps him home and the doctor who treats him subsequently lose theirs and everyone who comes into contact with them as well. The government, in an effort to prevent any further spread of the epidemic, puts the first five victims in quarantine in an old abandoned psychiatric hospital, which, of course, is in dreadful condition. The government also dispatches a brigade of soldiers to guard the hospital and they are under orders to shoot anyone who tries to escape. I won't give away any more. The terrifying thing about this book is that it shows how easily society can break down, how fragile our sense of security is and how how cruel power can be when it feels threatened. It's been so long since uh, since I think we in the Western world especially have experienced a cataclysmic event, something like a, a World War II or a, a plague or those, those type of events. And I think we've convinced ourselves that our present levels of comfort is the natural order of the world. Basically, Saramago's book, I feel, it wants to remind us that that notion is very much mistaken, that we're vulnerable, that our social structures are vulnerable, that when we come into... When, when a society panics... The, our notions of, of ethics and morality and stuff are crumble away very quickly. Anyway, uh, really, this book is worth a read, and uh, uh, I think I'll need a break before I tackle any of his other work, uh, as I've as actually myself, I've only really come across him recently. I heard about him on a trip to Portugal, and I went to a, a museum there. It's It's beautiful literature. It's really fantastic. So, anyway... If you do end up reading it based on my recommendation, just please tweet it out and let me know what you thought of it. I'd be very curious to know. Okay then, before I go, I will just remind you about the rules of the competition for the next episode. Stories should be submitted in word format, double-spaced, and less than 2,500 words in length to the email address liftthesync at yahoo.com. There's no entry fee. The only requirement is that you follow the show on Twitter. The deadline for submissions is the 15th of December. Okay, then, that's it for today. I'm really looking forward to reading all your work. So um, I'll talk to you soon, and good luck. (laughs) 